This is Aim High, the alumni podcast of Cranberry Kingswood, produced by University FM and co-hosted by Robert Lee and Kadir Mohammed. In this season, you'll hear from both alumni and faculty, people making an impact all around the world and linking it back to their time at Cranberry, a special place and community that leaves us aiming high wherever we go. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. Hello. With me today is Arsh Shah. He is class of 2012, and he has had a pretty interesting career path. So far, he has already founded three companies. So from newest to oldest, the first one is Glasslink, which is an accelerator for creators, Curate, with the number eight, which is a global entertainment company, and then Six, which is a tech consulting company. So he has definitely accomplished a lot since graduating from Cranbrook. And Arsh, welcome to the show. So the first place I want to get started is how did you start at Cranbrook? How did you find out about it? And what do you remember from the first time on campus? So I started in the boys' middle school in sixth grade. Did not, unfortunately, go through Brookside, but started with the boys' middle school. I was there for sixth and seventh grade. Seventh grade, I actually left Cranbrook and moved to China for three years. And then I came back to the upper school my sophomore year of high school and graduated through 10th, 11th, and 12th. What kind of things did you do while you were a student? Yeah. So uh, while I was a student, I was a part of the rowing team and crew. I was on track and field as well, tennis and cross country. I remember back in middle school, one of my fondest memories was the CK Robotics Club with Richard Lamb. That was really fun for me. I was, I was really into that stuff quite early, but then sort of got more into athletics as I got to high school. But so you're saying earlier, I think while you're a high school student, you thought you were going to go into international relations? Yep. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So, so why that? Yeah. You know, I, I really thought it was interesting. My junior year, I did kind of college prep courses and I got into a program at Yale University called the Ivy Scholars Program. And it was this program on foreign diplomacy and negotiation that worked solely with Yale professors, but also UN officials. And I just thought that was really interesting. You know, I, I had done model United Nations and all that at Cranbrook. And so I, I really was interested in like international government work. And then after the Yale program, I was like, okay, you know, I could see myself going into these international environments and trying to create social change. Eventually that, that materialized with me going to law school, which is what happened after college. So I, I will say, you know, my professional journey from Cranbrook until now still stayed true to that sort of international path, but in a, in a different way. Who are some of the um, mentors you really cherish while you're there? Definitely Eric Linder. Professor Linder, junior year English, American literature changed my life, right? I, I think that's, I really had an affinity and a knack for kind of 19th and 20th century American authors. So we studied Emerson, Thoreau, Whitman, you know, your, your classic American writers. I really, really resonated with Emerson and his work on self-reliance. A, a lot of that has kind of stayed true to, allowed me to stay true to really who I wanted to become and just get a deeper understanding of the person that I was then and the person that I've become today. So the person you are today, how are you different from the person you were? I think I've changed quite a bit. I think one, I'm definitely more outspoken. I think it's interesting that that doesn't necessarily come with boastfulness or, or being able to, or wanting to actually be proud of my accomplishments. I think being outspoken has actually created humility because I've realized how fortunate I've been to have Cranbrook, one, as a, as a founding base, and two, like all of the academic and professional experiences that I've built. And if there's anything I've learned from being able to lead teams and lead companies and 
get into ventures, uh, it's all about people, right? And I've put myself last. I've put myself last before teams. I've put myself last before peers because I think where I really find value is seeing other people succeed. So then tell me a little bit, you know, it was, it was in college that you really started going down your entrepreneurship path. At what point did you start switching from that international relations over into entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I, I was an international relations major in college. So I, I stepped in and said, okay, you know, I, I kind of want to stick to this IR path and, and figure out what the global economy looks like and, and all of that. But my sophomore year of college, which was 2014, I, I kind of had more of an interest in in two areas, right? The first was technology and emerging technologies. So artificial intelligence, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, but also finance, right? So I was really interested in the crypto narrative that was starting at the time. And a lot of what I realized was these small businesses and businesses around my college didn't really understand how to use emerging technologies, right? If you go to your, you know, mom and pop shoe store, they're not going to realize how some technology could improve their business process or improve an ability for them to generate more business or get customers or market. That's kind of where I started. And it was really understanding, hey, like, who are these smaller businesses that have never utilized technology in such an innovative way? But moreover, like, how can I step in and kind of change their entire paradigm as to what they thought business success could be using technology? And it was a a great market opportunity. But I've really cut my teeth on that, I think, in the first couple of years of starting that consulting agency. So when you say emerging technologies, what technologies specifically? I'd say probably my first clients was a play-to-earn blockchain gaming company. And it's very, I know, very technical, very somewhat you know specific. But what I essentially did was help them design NFTs as an in-app purchase for the App Store and the Google Play Store. And Apple currently has regulations on NFT sales in a mobile application. But before that even existed, I think it came out last year, this was many, many years ago. So I had actually helped the company design and, and kind of understand how NFTs would eventually be used in, in mobile gaming. But a lot of that is around blockchain as a core technology. But it's really cool to see large companies and large markets kind of moving in that direction and creating regulation around that area. Yeah, so you mentioned blockchain. And NFTs, I mean, when you started out, this was probably before like mainstream media kind of covered it. So how did you happen to dig into this topic? A lot of what I would do is honestly spend time on Reddit. So back when I was in college, just really getting into subreddits, really getting into these communities. I would invest in stocks in college. I had my own portfolio. And then, you know, I started to discover, okay, you know, there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum. And I saw Ethereum at a couple bucks, right? And so seeing those technologies and seeing how finance could eventually be changed and eventually seeing how business could could be changed as well is really what gave rise to that but exploration 100% subreddits playing around like experimenting with small amounts of money and seeing how much i could make right so i i really sort of gamified the approach for myself but where i really started to see translatable value was consulting in that area for businesses because nobody knew what these things were back then when people talk about blockchain, there's a lot uh, that people don't maybe quite understand. I mean, it's kind of complex. How do you go about simplifying the concept when you talk to these clients that you consult? A really simple explanation that I like to give is if you think about how you keep an accounting ledger, right? If you keep your checks and balances for a business, you understand what your expenses are. A blockchain is is essentially a ledger, right? It's a store of information that allows you to track what happens, right? That could be payment transactions, that could be 
information. So in the healthcare space, something that's really common for blockchain infrastructure is patient records, right? So it's essentially a non-changeable, non-transferable store of information that's secure. So applications range from healthcare to supply chain to payments, obviously with the cryptocurrency integration there and logistics as well, right? So any industry where you have data that shouldn't be changed and should remain secure can typically be affected by a blockchain. Okay, so this is this is a lot. I assume you're not doing it by yourself. How do you go about building out this team? Or how do you even start with the people? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think for me, it's really about understanding growth. And for, for six right now, that's kind of where we're at. I do most of the actual groundwork for clients. I don't have another consultant that I work with, but I do have someone that helps me develop and prospect to actually find new clients that need help, right? And now I think this many years in, like I've gotten advanced to a point of being able to find those clients and, and actually see where they need help, regardless of how advanced they are. So like I'll have really, really advanced, you know, highly technical people come in the door and say, hey, look, this is where we're at. How can you help? Right. But I'll also have someone that's like, hey, I have no idea how to use blockchain, right? Like very akin to my first clients. And I've kept it lean. I think that's something that's very, very interesting. Burn rate in terms of cash has been quite low. Just making sure that I can provide the same standard of of care that I have over time. And a lot of clients that I've had have cycled on. I don't work with them anymore. They've moved on to other ventures. But I try to keep that client list quite small. I've never really wanted to, to scale it to some massive organization that requires a lot of oversight. So, I mean, that decision sounds really, you know, intentional. How did you come about making that decision? You know, was it just how you started out or was there some, some, some I don't know, challenge, right, that you had to solve for? I think it's mainly based on how I started out, right? Because I gave that standard of service to clients very early. And, and that's what I think helped grow the business because I only went on word of mouth. I did very little sort of digital traditional marketing, and most of my clients now are, are referrals, you know, friends and family. It was just something that I enjoyed personally, but I never really was like, oh, I want to make, you know, lots and lots of money and I want to be in charge of this huge organization and build a large branded consultancy. Because I think that way, like customers and clients don't necessarily feel valued. And that was really important to me from, a, from an ethos standpoint wanted to make sure that I was really slowing down and helping these clients where they needed it. And that's how they've derived value. And, and of course, it goes to show this many years later, that approach has worked worked really well for me. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I mean, okay, so we, we spent all this time just talking about one of the companies. So the second company is then a entertainment-related company, uh, Curate, right? Okay, so this, this is like kind of a totally different industry it's not necessarily technology consulting. So how'd you get into this? Curate is actually where our initial company was called the Maxim Worldwide. And I actually co-founded that with Anthony Will, who's also a CK class of 2012 alum as well. And so we co-founded that company probably back in, I want to say 2020. So much further along than the first company, but we co-founded that company. You know, Anthony has a lot of fashion experience, entertainment area experience, culture and and streetwear and and things of that nature, right? More creative professions and really has a background in entertainment. So with that expertise and combined with my kind of international expertise on the business side and my legal expertise, 
having gone to law school, we felt that it'd be a great partnership. One, because I've known Tone for probably 15 years now, which is pretty crazy to think about. So it's natural to natural to find someone from Cranbrook, one of my best friends to, to go into business with. And we scaled that company. In about two years, we ended up with about 16 artists. So it's a it's a full service artist, brand management, entertainment, and media related company for anything from social media management to live bookings to brand development and helping artists get and find representation. I lived in China, as I mentioned. Tone also lived in China for a number of years as well. So we were really able to leverage international markets in a very different way. And I think that's what's really differentiated that venture from others. A lot of our clients now and artists that we work with, yes, are based in the US, but we've been able to put them into international markets. And uh, China is a, is a key one. We've worked with Korea, we've worked with Greece and Africa as well. So it's really all over the world. And that's been a really enlightening experience for me to learn how these entertainment transactions settle in different countries. Oh, what are some of the differences between countries? It's very interesting. Culturally, um, China, surprisingly, actually has a lot of fashion and a lot of streetwear and a lot of out there creativity, especially in that world that I don't think a lot of people see when they look at China as a country. Tokyo, of course, very well known as being a fashion capital. Greece, super interesting market, really unaware of the hip hop scene and the streetwear scene that exists in Greek rap. Of course, like I would never, I never had any idea that that existed. This is very enlightening to see that it's a flourishing market opportunity with a lot of fans and a lot of people that are interested in that out there. It's just really understanding these hidden market trends and things that a lot of people, when you, when you enter a market, aren't looking for. For example, like as an American, right, going into China, completely foreign, right? There's a lot of gatekeeping that happens with breaking into domestic business. And so... Luckily, you know, Tone had been living there when we started our company and he was really able to be on the ground. He was tapped in with all of the right people in the entertainment scene. And so we luckily didn't have to go through trying to break into things. But I feel like had he not been in that position, it would have been much, much more difficult to actually secure some of the partnerships um, with organizations in China. So Tone had worked on Rap of China, which was one of China's first rap battle contests that went international. There's also Iron Mike. Iron Mike was actually founded by somebody else from Detroit who actually mm. took that to China and, and started to do more hip hop battles and rap battles in the Shanghai market. How did you go about expanding like internationally? Like was was there some well thought you know strategy there or, or was it kind of by chance and just by meeting people? I think it was really leveraging the power of connections. We'd be traveling, like Tone would be traveling, I would be traveling and We'd meet someone and they'd say, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a musician, I'm an artist, this is what I do. And we'd say, oh, that's really cool. How are you getting managed, right? And a lot of those sales on artists and clients would be, we're a worldwide company, we have roots everywhere, because the most beautiful thing for artists is collaboration. So if I'm a Chinese artist and I tell you, hey, or, you know, and I tell you, hey, like, I want to work with somebody in Europe, right? How easy is that going to be for a domestic entertainment agency, right? Pretty difficult. So we used to sell potential artists and people that we work with on the international approach of, hey, look, we have other artists that you can collab with in Greece. We have somebody you can collab with in Africa. And most of these artists want to break out of their market. And so 
that to them becomes very, very attractive. Oh, you're telling me I can be big in Europe. You're telling me I can be big in Africa. I could be big in the US. And so that sort of creative collaboration was really a hallmark of what made Amexum and, and by extension Curate now grow into what it's become. And I think we really viewed it as a kind of family approach, right? We didn't look at it as, okay, well, let's just silo each market and build those markets domestically. We wanted to blend it to create something that the entertainment world hadn't seen. And we're small, right? You're not gonna you're not gonna go on Google and look for entertainment agency and we're not gonna be on the first page. We're tiny intentionally, once again, right? As you've seen with six, it's not about scalability. I would rather have an impact across a very small community and do something phenomenal for a very few people than have less of an impact across a larger community. Okay, so that's one theme. I think another theme is all right, emerging technology, kind of emerging artists, emerging markets. Yep, yeah, innovation. Right. Yeah, innovation, which ties with the third company. Okay, so this is the newest one, Glasslink. How old is it? How did you get started? And I know you're early on. Yep. Yeah, we're uh, we're about six months in. And so I, I founded Glasslink with someone that I met a, a couple of years ago uh, out in California. She's actually my co-founders in her 50s, right? And that's a very interesting, mm. very interesting decision, especially in the startup world to have varying age ranges. So, you know, I met her a couple of years ago. We've been kind of working together ever since. And what I think is so interesting about Glasslink and what we're building is, once again, it's really blending two of my passions, where I started and, and what my last company was. So we're blending tech and entertainment. And for me, it feels like the natural progression of what do artists need and what do creatives need and how do we build that for them using technology? So Glasslink in a nutshell is essentially a, a simple toolbox of tools that any creator, anybody creating content on the internet, anyone trying to collaborate on the internet can use. And the premise is really simple. We create end-to-end security for social media transactions, but we also create discoverability for creative professionals. So if I'm an artist, for example, if I'm a musician, hypothetically, you could collaborate with somebody through Glasslink, have KPIs that would get defined for a deal, get entered into our system. And once those KPIs get met, we use an automated escrow and money moves automatically. Now, Social media platforms today don't have payment protection, right? In your best case scenario, you probably got to rely on PayPal or Venmo or Cash App or something to, you know, authorize your payments. Uh, But it's very, very easy for creators to get screwed over by a bad actor, by somebody that just wants to take that money and run away, right? So we're solving that with an escrow, but we're also allowing you to define exactly what those KPIs are. Right now, we're starting with very simple KPIs, but eventually we're going to create really custom campaigns for larger creators and, and larger brands. Who are you serving right now? You know, is it is it kind of all international? Is it like a certain artist that has a certain amount of following? Like who who is it, or is it kind of everyone? It's everyone right now. Our our product is still being built out. You know, we plan to launch I think by Q two of this year. But ultimately, it's it's really everyone that wants to collaborate online because we don't want to gatekeep. We want to democratize access. We want to make sure that everyone can really utilize technologies that need to be utilized. Right? Social media is not the right platform in my mind to close a deal. Most creators don't use contracts. That's the other thing. Being a legal professional myself. Creators hate contracts, they hate reading, they hate the risk that goes associated with that. They're very much of the mindset of, hey, you know what, let's 
let's just work together. We'll figure out all the legal stuff later. But of course, they remain unprotected. And, and when a deal goes bad, they get screwed over and they get frustrated. And that leads to this inherent distrust that the legal system creates. And of course, you know, in the US, we love suing people. People have bad perceptions of, of lawyers. There's this kind of slimy attitude that goes towards the legal profession generally. But for us and for entertainment, we want to redefine that, right? So what if getting something legally enforceable for a deal was as simple as two clicks, right? You define what you need and you pay for it, and that's legally enforceable. So we're really looking to eliminate legal contracts in the entertainment industry as a byproduct of what's being built. It kind of sounds like, so the first two companies, you're serving a, a smaller group of people intentionally. This one feels bigger than that. Would you say so? Yep. I definitely say it's bigger because I think that maturity, and, and I, I don't want to say confidence, I'd probably want to say the ability to create scalable impact is now more so because we realize that it's such a simple problem, but we know that the problem needs to be solved. And everybody, everybody sees it, everybody experiences it, but no one knows how to fix it. And if Instagram and YouTube and a lot of these larger creator platforms could have, they would have done it a long time ago. So it's very, very interesting. And it's super fulfilling to see us go out, talk to artists, talk to creators, talk to content creators, and everyone's like, I, I really would have wanted to use this yesterday. Where the hell was this when I needed it? That's really inspiring to hear. What do you think uh, kept others from kind of trying to build as a solution? Why has it not existed? I think this doesn't exist because no one's come up with the right mix of products and, and features, right? Everyone goes single silo in the sense that, hey, you know, I want to only focus on payments. I only want to focus on legal. I only want to focus on collaboration, right? We're not Figma, we're not LegalZoom, we're not Upwork. We're not the single tool, you know, one trick pony type companies. We're envisioning this as a kind of modular ecosystem. So I think in terms of being first to market and, and not having that competition, we want to really create something that can go together, but that just as powerfully can be used separately. And I just think the vision hasn't existed, especially in the way that we've begun to execute it. The really interesting thing about that is creators don't have a home on the internet. YouTube for content, sure. Instagram for content and marketing. Then they have to rely on agencies. So the way that creators grow is broken. They got to rely on an algorithm, which they don't understand, or they have to rely on agencies that they don't trust. For us, Glasslink is changing. It's changing that, right? We're, we're creating transparency. We're creating security. We're creating a frictionless environment for creators to use that goes in tandem with social media, right? We're not fighting Instagram. We're not fighting YouTube. We're just there on the side. We're there on the side to make social safer. And that's proved really valuable for a lot of people because they don't want to change their current tools. They don't want to change Instagram and where their audience is. And we know that's really important. What types of challenges do you foresee in your near term? I think obviously um, with any startup, fundraising is, is a big challenge, right? Making sure that this is pitchable to investors, of course, always, always, always a challenge. On the tech development side, we're really trying to figure out what that innovative technology is going to be. And we've experimented with a few different solutions as we've begun to build it out. You know, we've looked at blockchain, we've looked at kind of fiat and crypto payments. But we really have to make sure our market is well aligned with what we're building. And if we go heavy Web3, we go heavy crypto, with the crypto fallout, creators can't trust that, right? And so we're well aware, and given my experience in that area, I'm well aware of the fact that we have to create something that our market and our users are going to want. And I think to answer your question directly, 
I'd probably have to say the technology development and, and fundraising are our biggest challenges in the next couple months. But I think we're well positioned to solve that. Our product team is super strong, marketing team incredibly strong as well. So I do think we'll be able to dictate and show clear traction to potential investors and also have kind of product-led growth that we're looking for. So earlier on, you mentioned your business partner. What was that decision-making process like? Like how how did you kind of know, okay, like this is the person I want to work with? Yeah, you know, she um, she's 25 years of experience in mergers and acquisitions, um, ex-investment banker. She's worked with, you know, she was originally a software consultant in the 90s for Apple and Johnson and Johnson, HP and Disney, and so she's had kind of that computer sciencey sort of technical experience. But I think really what's what's really really important is the financial side. Businesses, especially today, when you look at fundraising, struggle with runway. They struggle to maintain profitability, user retention, and the books. Right, the books are the most one of the most fundamental important things of having a, a scalable company. And this isn't an LLC similar to my other ventures. I've had a limited partnership. I had an LLC uh, for six. This is a C corporation, right? So we're, we're a Delaware C corporation. By extension, that means a couple things on the legal side. Liability is a little bit higher. Corporate structure is a little bit more complex. And necessarily, the staff is larger than what I've worked with in the past, right? I've been on this very small level before working for individual you know, clients. Now we're serving the world. Right. And so I think for me in my journey professionally, I've really been able to step into that role as CEO and and figure out, hey, you know, I need to have somebody with experience that's right there. I gotta have the right tech person, I gotta have the right marketing person. Age to me, it doesn't mean, you know, that one, you you just kind of know everything, but you're also able to trust that life experience. Our technology, you know, folks, super, super experienced as well, product folks, super, super experienced. So I never really looked at age as a determinant in that process of saying, hey, you know, I want to start this venture with someone, oh, she's 50 years old or, or you know, in her 50s. What is a VC going to say? Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned different levels or, or different moments of life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you recently got engaged. Congratulations. Yep. Thank you very much. When's the ceremony? Next summer, most likely. Uh, ideal. I mean, I'd love, I'd love for it to happen this year, but planning and that whole process has been uh, has been very hectic. My fiance is a nurse. She's finished her master's last year. So yeah, she's she's doing really, really well, but it's been very hectic planning all that out and hopefully soon. What's more hectic, this planning or planning for the business? Uh, I'd probably have to say... Oh man, I'd probably have to say planning for the business, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but this is a close second. Yeah. Well, hey, that, that's that's amazing. So I, I got one more question for Yorsh. I mean, I, you've kind of answered this already, but how are you aiming high? I really want to grow my own skills, grow my own capabilities, and really want to kind of give back to the world, right? Cranbrook really always taught me about giving back. That's really what Cranbrook is about in terms of fundraising and charitable giving and having those values that we can pass on to others. I've recently started mentoring a younger guy, you know, he's probably five or six years younger than me. And to me, being able to instill that potential in someone that doesn't see it in themselves yet is really how I'm going to help, right? We do that with Classlink, we do that for potential clients, and now I'm doing it for somebody that I'm mentoring. And so aiming high to me is yes, one, innovation, professional success, hopefully at some point financial success, 
But I think really being selfless, because that's what creates growth. That's what inspires people. And ultimately, that's what creates happiness. Amazing. Well, hey, if, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, you know, you could give me a call on my cell. My email is arsh at glasslink.io or on LinkedIn. Cool. Well, hey, you know, wishing you great success. I mean, you're already moving up, up and up. So excited to see where you go. Thank you so much, Robert. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Love Cranbrook. Aim high always. And I really, uh, really appreciated this time. This has been Aim High, Cranbrook Kingswood's alumni podcast. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you could take a few seconds to subscribe wherever you listen and leave us a five-star review. This helps a lot in getting the word out and making the podcast easier to find.